I'm back. We missed you. Thank you. I missed you too. Tell us everything. How was your summer? How was your time working on your book? Did you go on a writing retreat to a cabin somewhere? Go walking through the forest, the birds above singing you a chorus? Ugh, I wish there were birds involved, but stop for a minute. I'm here to tell you. Writing a book is not easy, and it's definitely nothing like the cabin fantasy we have in our heads, and I'm no exception to this rule. I'm simple, but I'm no fool. I do know writing is a cruel process, even when you love it. Yeah, I do love it, and I also hate it. (laughs) But love is the only thing that helps you through it. Nothing else can do it. That's what love is for. It brings us back to our senses, gives us strength to try once more. You might even say it it melts our defenses, which you need when writing because it's easy to get down on yourself to start questioning your skills, your ideas, just whether the book is any good. It's going to be any good or if anybody's going to buy it. Well, that's what rough drafts are for, right? You're not asking for the world. I'm not asking for perfection. Just a book that's well-designed for passing the test of time. Well, hear me speak what's on my mind. Let me give this testimony. I know your book is going to be great. And in the meantime, I am so glad to have you back for season two of Saved by the City. I am jazzed to be back. And so thank you for taking the wheel for the summer series episodes. Thank you to the guests who helped host in my place. I got you, girl. Any kind of weather. I'm here for you. Always and forever. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York, pursuing our ambitions without losing our devotion. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Here on Saved by the City, we plan to upend the idea that God is nowhere to be found in Gotham. So it does feel a little like the first day back to school after summer break. Like, I feel like I should have a souvenir from my family's summer vacation. I always loved the first day back to school. You always got to wear like a cool new outfit and sort of come into school like, look how much I've changed. Look how much I've grown. Look how cool I am now. Did you have any favorite back to school outfits Mm. that you remember? The one that stands out is my back-to-school outfit. Senior year of high school, apparently I was still doing that at age 17. (laughs) Uh, My mom did not pick it out for me. I got to pick it out, and it was a lilac-colored Esprit denim jacket with black pants and those Steve Madden black platform sandals, like wedge sandals. Mm -hmm. that were very popular in Delia's and... I think I had an L.L. Bean backpack. I thought that was really cool. (laughs) What about you? Do you have a... Yeah. Well, I remember, I don't know, maybe it was like fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere in those years. I had these stonewashed denim Levi's. Yeah, you did. Only they weren't just like blue stonewashed. They had multiple colors of stonewashed. They had like a light purple and a teal and a pink. Very cool. Very 80s. They were definitely (laughs) pleated. And I wore them with these black and purple Nike high tops. So basically they would be cool now too. Same with your sandals, your wedge sandals. Everything comes back. Here we are. Kids, we're here to tell you that the Teens on TikTok are wearing the things that we wore in 1995. So hold on. 
<laughs> yeah. To your favorite back to school outfits. You might want to wear them again. In 20 years. Well, for real, tell us a little bit about the book writing process, even if it wasn't a magical cabin. Give us a peek into what you were working on, how you were kind of approaching the book. Was it a lot of interviews and research this summer? Were you mostly just writing? Yeah. So I'm writing a book on the problem of celebrity in the church. It seems like it might be timely. Let's hope that it's timely mm-hmm. when it comes out next summer. No, I think we'll fix it by then. Yeah. Yeah. It'll it'll be wrapped up by then. But yeah, I would say I was mostly writing. Of course, there's research, some research and interviews, but mostly like a weekend project. It's hard for me to write during the work week. So yeah, the book will be out next summer. And it's a lot. It's it's like kind of the marathon of writing. I find writing to be daunting for many reasons, even though it's part of my job. But especially with a book, in part because it's such a personal thing to put yourself out there, because it feels like so often, especially in Christian publishing circles, that women are often expected to write the memoir or the very personal mm-hmm. story. Whereas, you know, it's more often that books about topics are often written by men and, and are approached in a sense of like, I can be the objective observer mm-hmm. of this and commentator on this. There seems to be an expectation for women to bring a lot of their personal experiences into their writing. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. And I mean, certainly that's true beyond like Christian publishing. Like I think publishing in general Mm. tends to expect women to either write like very revealing memoirs or kind of put their pain on the page for other people to consume Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. speak more from personal experience or more towards self-help. Whereas the work of journalists or kind of observers, as you said, is like, well, we can trust men to be the quote unquote objective observers. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, I feel like I (laughs) actually, that's my real insecurity is that I'm not like, Hey girl enough. Right. That I'm, that I'm not feeding that expectation that women be, self-disclosing and vulnerable and rely on personal storytelling. My strength is like research, analysis, observation. And for that reason, I have some insecurities about being a quote unquote female author. I know this from having worked in publishing before and you obviously work in publishing now. Like there is a sense, I mean, you're often told this, that as a woman, it's going to be women buying your books. Mm -hmm. The research and data is out there that men have a tendency not to buy books written by women as much. Yeah. So to fix that, we're going to put like a floral print on the cover and like a really scripty font with like a woman sitting in a martini (laughs) Uh cocktail glass with high heels. It just... It seems mm-hmm. to really resonate across genders. Yeah, for sure. Will she be <laughs> getting hit on by a celebrity pastor? Well, <laughs> oh, <laughs> in this cocktail dress. That's that is a way to bring this bring this back. Yeah, that's sad and funny. And that you you feel this pressure of like, in order for women to want to read my book, I'm going to have to like be more emotive, put more of my mm-hmm. experiences, my pain, my vulnerabilities on display, 
But then mm-hmm. maybe men won't read it. But will men respect me as the objective journalist commentator? And I do, I mm-hmm. do think that's like a really interesting tension that women authors have to live in, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that that mold has kind of been set. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it's real in a gender divide. It's also real, I think, in a racial divide. I mean, I think there's a sense that if you're coming from a marginalized group that your mm. experiences are somehow like tainting your ability to see the reality or to see it objectively your negative experiences of being a woman in this setting or of being someone of color in this setting mm-hmm. it's too loaded of a thing for you to talk about without bringing mm. all of that to the table yeah i mean i think it's a double edged sword with self disclosure that if you do bring very personal details out into the public square and build a platform around a feeling of like friendship like we're all just friends then your audience can lay can and will lay claim to you in the way that a friend would that is just like so inappropriate or unfair in terms of how we relate to authors but also anybody in the public eye like singers for example (laughs) or musicians or Mm -hmm. anybody that we look up to as an icon they come to represent some kind of ideal or embodied expectation that is fairly hard for any person actual person Mm -hmm. to live up to Mm-hmm. And then there's the expectation of self-disclosure in the way that you would get in a friendship. But then there's also a kind of harsh judgment when that person, maybe especially women, does something out of bounds mm-hmm. in a particular community. I mean, this can even happen when an artist like changes their style, you know, like maybe True. they change their artistic style or they do something that's outside the consumer's expectation and then it falls really personally on them. So being a Christian woman in the public eye really does seem to come with so many tensions and vulnerabilities. And while I'm really grateful to be living in a time when more and more women are finding spaces and platforms to share their voices, Mm -hmm. I don't discount the cost of that for many Mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, it seems like often the cost is very hidden, but very personally deeply felt and can take years to kind of, when you're rejected by a community that has formerly embraced you, when your fans become your biggest critics, that of course is going to be painful. And there are a number of those stories and a number of women who really paved the way And today, we get to talk to one of the OGs, a woman who was a symbol and icon for both of us growing up and for so many other Christian women and girls in the 80s and 90s. It's been 30 years since Amy Grant released her iconic album, Heart in Motion. It signaled her move from primarily Christian music into the broader world of pop music. (laughs) And I was listening to this album again a few days ago, prepping for this podcast, and Dang it, if I didn't just start singing and dancing, that is the magic of Amy Grant when she puts our heart in motion. I was transported back to, you know, like my mom's cassette tapes in the car. Mm -hmm. But it's not just nostalgia. A lot of those songs 
stand the test of time. They do. There's still some bangers on there, that's for sure. You like to dance and listen to the music. It's hard to capture just how much today's guests meant to our younger selves. Not just to us, to an entire generation, really. Amy Grant was our Britney, <laughs> only without the Catholic schoolgirl outfit. That's probably for the best. We suspected we weren't alone in loving, even idolizing Amy as girls growing up in the church. So we conducted some serious, in-depth research to confirm our hunches. I mean, I tweeted something, and that is research in Absolutely. my book. I, I asked, how would you capture what Amy Grant meant to you and to a generation of evangelical Christians? I got more than 200 responses. <sighs> wow, that's great. That's really actually amazing. So what, what were a few of the standouts? Well, this was basically a gush fest. Aww. There was there was nary. Well, there was one negative comment, but I <laughs> muted her. Um, <laughs> okay, so here are some standouts from the feedback I got. One woman said, "I loved her music from the beginning. Used to do aerobics to her music in college. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. If anybody wanted to launch like an aerobics YouTube channel featuring." CCM music. I would be totally down. <laughs> Another woman said, I got a perm at 10 years old thinking I'd have curls like hers. Nope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people said that they got perms because of Amy Grant. That's so funny. Amazing. This was a very common theme. One woman wrote, Amy Grant gave voice to young women. She was talented, beautiful, powerful, and loved Jesus. She said what many of us wanted to, but didn't think anyone would listen. A big sister and a great friend. Oh, love that. And then finally, another OG, Beth Moore, responded. Oh, the theme of aerobics here. <laughs> and amazing hair. Yes, also. Beth Moore said... Amy Grant put to contemporary music so much of what I felt as a young woman falling for Jesus but couldn't articulate. I raised my girls on Amy's music, and to this day, sometimes when we're together, we turn those songs on and way up and sing our hearts out, knowing every word from memory. Yes. That's I love amazing. this image of Beth Moore and her daughters just driving through the Texas countryside, <laughs> belting out Amy Grant. Love it. Beth, if you ever want to have us down to try your homemade queso and sing Amy Grant songs, we're game. Well, one of the highlights of our summer was actually sitting down with Amy Grant to ask what it felt like to be a female Christian celebrity and to spend so much of her life, the good and the bad, the ups and the downs in the public eye. Our conversation with Amy is coming up right after we give a warm shout out to the patrons who make all of this possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, tell us. You can rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews make a huge impact and help listeners find us. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com or follow along on Twitter at hashtag Saved by the City. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief. 
where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We are just plain giddy to have a childhood hero and endearing Christian icon, Amy Grant, join us for this episode. Dubbed the queen of Christian pop, she is celebrating the 30-year anniversary of her album Heart in Motion, which was certified platinum five times, making it the best-selling Christian album of all time. Today, Amy Grant continues to make music and lives on a farm in Nashville, where she talked with us earlier this summer. Thank you for being with us, Amy. My pleasure. This is fun. Girls, girls, girls. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... Part of why we're here today and why we are so excited to talk to you is that we are in the 30th anniversary year of your album, Heart in Motion. I think this is probably true for me and Roxy and also for a lot of our listeners. We listened to that album a lot. (laughs) What did that album, Heart in Motion, represent for you in terms of your own sense of identity and kind of where you were in your personal and professional life? Mm. Well, you sure started off with a light, fluffy question. <laughs> we we find it hard to do light and fluffy. We try. Just, oh, just so you know. <laughs> 30 years ago feels like not just half a lifetime ago. It feels like lifetimes ago. Mm. You know, because every, every season of life is so different. And people will say, what were you thinking when you wrote this song? What were you thinking? And I go, I can't remember what I was thinking five years ago. But... What I mostly remember was those were the early years of motherhood for me. Mm. I had a newborn Mm. baby girl. I wrote a lot of those songs while I was pregnant with her. And then, you know, it takes a while to make a record. And then by the time we were rehearsed and ready to launch the tour, she was a year old, her brother. So I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And I mostly just remember feeling like I had been, well, simultaneously shot out of a cannon and drinking out of a fire hose. I was so glad that the songs we were doing were just full of joy and kindness. Like I look back on that record and I just thought that was a really gentle record, hmm. you know, hmm. fun. And that really is how I felt about life. I'd always wanted to be a mom, but it's like you just blink and a whole half of your life has gone by. You know, when I think about that album, I think about it as being as Caitlin said, sort of this, this new trajectory for you, this new space that you were Mm -hmm. occupying. It was, you know, often referred to as your crossover album. Oh, right. Yeah. And when I say, you know, you seem like a a trailblazer for a lot of us, it was that sense of we can be Christians, but we don't have to be in the Christian bubble. And there's this way to embody our faith in a space that is, more mainstream. I mean, what was that time like for you? And how did you own or come to own your own space in that in-between and that push and pull? So that that album came out in 1991. Five years before that, maybe six years before that, I had been signed solely to a gospel mm-hmm. record label and had been for, you know, at that point, 10 years. At Word Records went to A&M Records and said, we have an artist we feel like would benefit from mainstream distribution. And this is before all of the platforms that anybody can find. You know, you really, you had to go to a record store. Mm -hmm, You had to hear something on the radio. 
And so at this point, I was five years into a fantastic working relationship with what you would call a record company that was for, you know, entrenched in the Christian world and one that was not. It was just straight on, you know, pop mainstream. And my observation is it's just people. And I've just always seen myself and everybody else on an incredible life journey. So much of how we see the world is a result of the family we were born into, what we were exposed to, um, how that shaped the lens of our understanding. I oftentimes ask myself, if I had been born somewhere else, when might I have found the journey of faith? Mm. And But when I look at myself that way, when I look at other people that way, it gives me a lot more confidence in sort of the overarching epic work of God and people. It makes me trust that if our faith is not a sham, Hmm. that God is at work in everybody's life, whether we recognize it or not, whether we say it or not, whether there's language for it or not. And so I would always just look at people like, well, you're somewhere on the same journey I'm on. And so Hmm. I've put language to it. When I enter a room, I just trust that we are all on a journey and that we're actually all on a faith journey, even if we don't have language for it yet. I've always felt that way. And so when I sit down, I sat down with a man who's passed away, but he was head of artist and repertoire, A&R, at A&M Records. It's mm-hmm. a lot of letters, but his name is David Anderley, and he was instrumental in so many people's careers. And I'm sitting in a restaurant in Los Angeles, and he said... I want to tell you my first experience with Christianity. And he said, I was a Mm. child and I lived in an an environment that was anti-Semitic and I was Jewish. And my first ever memory of anything Christian was a giant life-size cross burning in my front yard. Oh my gosh. No. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I said, wow, that is, that paints quite a picture. Mm. And he said, when you make music, sing to people like me. Oh, wow. Hmm. It's interesting how people that you meet shape. I think I already was on that trajectory, but it shaped my language. It shaped my storytelling. I'm so grateful for that. Hmm. You said Heart in Motion was a fun album. You were drinking from the fire hose and shot mm-hmm. out of the cannon at the same time. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a, quite a metaphor. What was it like to be thrust into a new, bigger limelight? Do you miss being on tour? Do you miss meeting fans? What was it like to kind of break out as a pop singer, a pop pop singer celebrity, especially as a young woman, a young mother? What was that experience like? That's an interesting question. You know, at the time that record came out, I had actually been touring for over a decade. Mm-hmm. And had had large crowds. I mean, we had set attendance records other places, but it was less known. Contemporary Christian music was more, especially then, it was more word of mouth, kind of Mm. a like a grass fire. I think when I delivered the record to them, they, for the first time, felt I had delivered something that that they could take and run with. And so Mm -hmm. suddenly, even though I'd made videos before, when you become a part of of potentially somebody's bottom line financially, then all the attention is on like, 
you know, <laughs> it's like the quarterback, go long. And suddenly everybody <laughs> put their attention on that record. I didn't know that was going to happen when I was making the record. I was just right. making music that reflected the joy and fun. And I wanted to celebrate. Life was fun at the time. We had such a great creative team. Uh, that record was the first time I worked with three producers instead of the one producer I had always worked with. Mm -hmm. They were all friends. It was, it was just so much energetic, creative synergy around that project. And it felt so inclusive. It was kind of the first big pop project that, that really flew out of Nashville, which had been mm -hmm. pretty much known as a country music town. Anyway, suddenly, you know, I'd always picked out my own clothes, done my hair, done my makeup, at whatever state that was, washed or unwashed. <laughs> but suddenly, <laughs> I had all the eyes and the creative team of a big record company. Mm-hmm with all their video production. And what I really remember like was going in and, and thinking, oh my gosh, like a small army is about to create right. this video. And that lasted really off and on for about eight years. Wow. I would find myself like, I don't know, just, hey, we're doing a, uh, we need to do a video. You're on the road, you're in Europe, we're sending a plane, you'll go to the coast of Spain. You know, and I, I, was, <laughs> I was like, where am I? <laughs> But, you know, it's always just filled with wonderful people that were hmm. loving their job, glad to have a job. I did feel somewhat sheltered. And then it was like, hmm. whoa, it's a great big world out there. Yeah. I'm glad that it was fun and that you were around wonderful people because it seems like right now we're getting all of these kind of dark pictures of what the behind the scenes of that life was like is like for a lot of young women pop stars. So like Britney mm. Spears is this example right now where it just seems like her whole right. life was so controlled and so like the stakes were so high all of the time and she had so little agency and mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like it was like that for you or do you look back and you think, gosh, that was, it was fun, but there was a lot going on in terms of like pulling the strings of my life. Yes, I do feel like there was a lot of life by committee, a mm -hmm. lot of choices that were, there was a, an upside to that, you know, there, um, especially because the people closest to me, I had such confidence in and I trusted their creative opinions. I trusted. So I never felt like I was facing this thing alone ever, mm -hmm. ever, ever. Yeah. I mean, were there times, you know, I did feel like the wooden carved <laughs> mermaid on the front of the boat with all these people behind. But I did feel like the waves hit me first. Just the time commitment, the travel, and sometimes having to be away from my family. Or, you know, it's just like sort of when you're the hot thing or your career's got the heat, everybody puts more fuel in that engine. It was overwhelming. It's funny because I've gone to shows as, a, you know, that, I mean, I still make music, I play theaters, I'm going on tour, but it's never kind of like that. And I will, <laughs> I'll sit in an audience, like I was at a Beyonce show and it's all the bells and whistles, much bigger than the bells and whistles I ever had, but still. <laughs> but you were our Beyonce. But st uh, still, and I just remember going, whoo, I am so glad to be where I am now. Yeah. Hmm. I'm so glad because that is a lot. You just cannot have something 
massive happen without a lot of people putting all their eggs in that basket. You know, everybody's working hard. Everybody's sacrificing. Everybody mm -hmm. is doing 80-hour weeks. It's not just the artist. Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by such a great team. And A&M Records was artist-driven. And, you know, for, for a lot of reasons that I do and don't understand, as it turned out, by the time the end of that decade rolled around, I had gone through a divorce. And so, you know, I just, I look back and say, well, it's hard to know what brought on what. Right. But we all just are doing the best we can with the toolkit we have at the time. And there there were so many amazing things about that time in my life. But there were probably, I mean, clearly <laughs> there were other things that were slowly coming unraveled. And and really the litmus yeah. test will be my children. You know, they're they've all launched, but that was asking a lot of them, too. And I, I used to say, if you yeah. can survive your mother, you can survive anything. <laughs> yeah, it's not that I wasn't trying to be present, but there was just a, so much going on, you know? So I'm also divorced. And I remember when you went through that, the way that it became a culture war around your divorce and you ended up having to bear the brunt of this, like, this panic in the nineties about divorce. And it was so different when I got divorced. I mean, it was awful and really hard and painful, but it wasn't like, I didn't have people at church telling me things about it being a sin and all of that. And I just, I am sorry that you had to go through that. And when I think back, like, again, just the way that you ended up having to be this symbol for so many people, when you think back on this now, what would you tell yourself in that time period that you have now from the from the space of decades later? Well, first off, when I look back on that time, the way you talked about it then, it I know that there was a very public side of it. Mm. I don't mean this in a flippant way, but what conversation that was happening at somebody else's dinner table or I, that, I just didn't even have the energy to think about it. Mm. And I didn't pursue it. It was everything I could do just to get through the day and, and sort of navigate my own therapy, my own loss, my own guilt, all that. And so when I, when I look back on that, I really think of it as like a 10-year. It felt like 10 years going into it. I mean, five years that led to that, that I really could sense shift in my life, like the erosion Mm -hmm. And then it was another five years before I finally felt like the life I had built, that I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this life and the way mm -hmm. it looks right now. But it really took about five years for the shadow of the past to not be so long over the life, you know, the seeds mm -hmm. that I was watering. It just takes a lot longer for the scene to be set for big change than anybody gives credit. I'm sure there are losses that I will never understand that happened in that time for my children, my extended family, from a work standpoint. But there were also so many things that were gained. I felt like the conversations that came to me later were like uh, much more vulnerable from other people. Mm -hmm. Hey, I went through this, mm -hmm. you know, 
I just figure anything that we go through, we just sort of run, skip, crawl, limp, (laughs) drag ourselves, whatever it is, then we have that perspective to share with other people. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, I was invited to do an event for an after-school program for kids at risk. I was asked to speak for just a minute, but mostly sing. And I was put at a table with a, a program director from the largest Christian radio station in that town. And we had such a lovely visit. I mean, I, our paths had not crossed in a long, long time since, you know, before I was divorced and now I was remarried and the child that Vince and I had had was, you know, probably, I don't know, middle school. But it was just so nice to reconnect. And we go back to the hotel room that night, and my manager, a woman, said, I'm so glad I trusted my instinct. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I just saw a saga play out tonight that was so beautiful. And I said, well, tell me all about it. And she said, oh, you're part of it. (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) And she said, when you went through your divorce, that radio station banned your music. Oh, wow. She said, I never told you because I thought, well, it's not going to change what you have to wake up and do that day. The after-school organization, that 501c3, went to the radio station and said, are you telling me because she went through a divorce 10 years ago, you're not playing her music? We actually need your help to help the at-risk kids in our community. Can you rethink that decision on your part and come Mm. alongside us? And extend some grace toward that woman. I knew nothing about this. So I go right. and I sit down at the table. You're just coming. And I'm like, yeah. hey, I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> and my manager is saying, I'm so glad. Hmm. She said, I'm so glad I never told you that you were like blacklisted. Hmm. And then she said, have you noticed we haven't toured that town for a decade? And I went, well, <laughs> I'm touring nonstop. And to me, that was such a lesson in the things that we talk about and the you know the fires that we stoke and kindle you know our energy is going to go somewhere mm. and you can either feed the flame of negativity or hurt or disappointment and i don't fault them for any choice they made their radio station but i felt like everything was at a better place because that fire of separation wasn't kindled mm-hmm. that's what i'm that's what i mean and that had, honestly, that had nothing to do with me. If you know of some scuttlebutt situation, mm-hmm. it is sometimes a great thing to not even give it any airtime. Because eventually, all that intensity around it will mm-hmm. fade. And it's just less to have to get over. Well, especially <laughs> when it involves you so directly to be shielded from your manager, from being sucked into, you know, this scuttlebutt around the station refusing to play your records and how so many years later it worked itself out and came together in a potentially redemptive way that they had changed their minds and that you were able to have a positive interaction with the radio manager. Yes, absolutely. You can say, this is how we do it. This is how we don't do it. But life happens, and it always presents an opportunity to look at, well, how, well now, how does love look now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
because love always has a voice and it looks different and it always goes off mm. script and yeah thank you so much amy thank you so much thank you so much and roxy i hope you have found level ground and wherever you are in that tunnel i hope i hope it's clear sailing now thank you you're the kind when you love you love with all your might and you're the loved getting to talk to Amy and our conversation in part because I think as one of our tweeters said like there really is something about a big sister energy to her I mean even when we were having our conversation with her and you know she was joking about fashion before we started recording and at the end said some just really wonderful things to me about recovering from divorce and healing and all of that and it really had a big sister Mm -hmm. energy to it it really did yeah I think I took a lot of comfort in seeing where Amy has ended up despite like years of really difficult personal struggles Mm -hmm. and criticism and her life basically falling apart and seeing that she's not only come out of that, but she has sought to bless and care for other people and just has such a generous spirit in like opening up her studio in Nashville and opening up her her farm to guests but that generosity of spirit came through in our conversation with her as well and I think she just genuinely loves her life and that's amazing I'm very happy for her (laughs) well first episode of season two is a wrap Say by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.